Good morning and welcome back to Alger Assembly of God. We do welcome you to the beginning of a brand new series. You see the, the graphic up on the screen. You might have seen that posted or uh, teased on, on Facebook as far as what's upcoming. It is a brand new series beginning today where we will explore probably the most well-known, probably the most loved, and probably the most memorized portion or passage of Scripture in the entire Word of God. Maybe not the most recognized or familiar or memorized verse, that's probably John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, but as a passage or specifically as a chapter, this one has provided peace and help and comfort to millions, probably billions of individuals over the last thousands of years. It's one that, uh, well, it's, it's presented and shared and read in many, many funerals. In fact, just yesterday I was visiting a, a visitation of one and taking a look at the agenda, and it was on the agenda to be shared. It's one where people provide and, and receive a lot of peace and comfort and hope in the midst of heartache, sorrow, tragedy, or loss. It's the topic and text for hundreds of songs over the years through the Christian church. As well, it's quoted in, in many secular songs, secular writings, everything from the Eagles to U2 to Marilyn Manson. All of those have found or used inspiration or quotes from this particular passage of Scripture. Johann Sebastian Bach wrote an incredible and a, and a beautiful cantata with this portion as uh, his title and inspiration. The rapper Tupac, a couple of decades ago before he passed, wrote a song entitled So Many Tears, based on, inspired by, and at least a handful of lyrics, almost taken word for word, from this particular passage. So what is it? What are we studying? What portion, what scripture, what passage are we heading into beginning today? If you said Psalm 23, you are correct. Psalm 23 is the chapter. Psalm 23 is the portion of scripture. It's the passage. And so that leads us to the title of the Good Shepherd. Psalm 23, it begins with that famous of words... The Lord is my shepherd. So the very first two words are the Lord. Well, and you take a look at the very last verse. He says, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Beginning and ending with the Lord. Ending on that word forever. It's a pretty powerful thought. Psalm 23 is often called the Psalm of Psalms. Probably, as we mentioned, the most well-known chapter in the Bible. You've seen paintings and, and you've seen pictures and you've seen murals and Afghans and all kinds of art based upon Psalm 23. Written by King David, most would believe, towards the 
end of his life, as he's maybe looking back or reviewing and seeing how the Lord was his shepherd, leading and guiding him in the midst of all that he had been through in his life. Psalm 23 is only six verses long. So it's short, it's, it's compact, and because of that, many, well, many of us have learned, studied, maybe even memorized Psalm 23. If you did so in the King James Version, it was only 118 words I counted. Now, in a few moments, we're going to uh, share and speak and, and read through that in the King James for kind of the, the poetic license, and it's a very familiar with the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. We'll, we'll get into some of those very familiar and poetic verses. In future weeks, we might get to a little bit more of a modern translation, the NIV, and there's just 109 words in the New International Version. So Psalm 23 goes like this. If you've got the King James, if you've learned or memorized the King James, you can go ahead and, and read along with or quote along with me, and it goes something like this. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want... He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, there's a, there's a lot of versions. There's a, a lot of paraphrases. And yet, the King James version of this text has become very, very familiar to many. So, we read about this. Powerful words beginning with, The Lord is my shepherd. He is a good Shepherd, And in our coming weeks together, we're going to explore how he is a good shepherd and, and literally taking it verse by verse, winding our way through Psalm 23 and discovering how he is that good shepherd. This morning's more of an introduction to the text, an introduction to the psalm, to the author. And if we look at this text and it says, the Lord is my shepherd, David writing about this what does that make David, or what does that make you and I if we read it and speak it and declare it as David did? Shout it out. Sheep. That makes you and I sheep. If the Lord is my shepherd, our shepherd, that makes me a sheep. Did you know that in the Word of God, God refers to you and I, His people, as sheep somewhere between 100 and 200 times. 
It's a very familiar reference. It's a very familiar metaphor, if you would, where we are compared to or likened to sheep. So some of you are you're thinking, well, well, sheep, is, is that a good thing? Is, is that a bad thing? Well, we're going to explore it. What I will say is it's a very interesting thing, right? Because you're thinking, I'm a, I'm, I'm a what? A sheep? Some of you, I know, you're sitting there and you're thinking, well, well, God, why couldn't you have called me an eagle? Majestic, soaring, mighty, and, and regal as an eagle. I mean, the United States of America has, has selected the eagle as, as our, our, our mascot of sorts, the, the emblem of the United States. Why couldn't we be eagles soaring through the sky for you, God? Okay, maybe not an eagle, but, oh, oh, I know. How about a lion, right? Strong, powerful, king of the jungle. Well, sort of already taken. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah, so that, that's out for us. But we're likened to sheep. There's a lot of authors and writers and pastors and scholars and commentators, and, and as you look at what everybody does is they, they try to figure out, well, what in the world are the descriptions of sheep and, and how might that relate to us? They've, they've come up with a number of descriptions and, and to make it stick, many times they refer to them and their words or descriptions or adjectives that begin with the letter D. So real quickly, many of you have heard some of these before as the descriptions of sheep before we get into the Word of God. But many times, sheep are considered to be dirty animals. They're not the cleanest. I mean, they're, they're outside all day. I've not really seen sheep as indoor house pets. Not to say someone doesn't have one, but sheep are typically outside. And just imagine if you wore a big puffy sweater that grew exponentially the more you wore it, but you never took it off, and you were always outside and never inside, what that sweater might end up being like. Let's call it a, let's make it a wool sweater, right? That's kind of what the sheep are like. I mean, our minds, our pictures are such, we envision the white, puffy, fluffy, I mean, white as the driven snow sheep. When you see a sheep like that, they didn't get that way on their own. Are sheep like cats where they can kind of clean or, or lick themselves and they're not able to? They can't. They won't. They need help. They need the shepherd to clean or they need to be sheared of their wool. So sheep are not the most clean of animals. They're often thought to be rather dirty. The second one, we don't necessarily like, and there's, sometimes there's a little bit of debate, and it's not, the, it's not the nicest word. We try not to say this word to others, but many would think of sheep as being dumb. Not the brightest animal in the pen. Now, there's debate. There's, there's some who would say, but we've done studies, and, and sheep are able to do this, this, or this. Let me just ask you, how many times have you seen a trained sheep in a circus? We've seen dogs. I mean, 
I mean, they're on America's Got Talent. I mean, dogs have done some incredible things. Dogs and, and uh, you know, elephants and, I mean, tigers and seals and hippos. And, I mean, there's some incredible majestic animals. Maybe you've seen one. I've never seen a sheep be trained for anything. And so sheep are, are not generally regarded as the smartest of animals. There's debate on, well, how intelligent or not, they don't seem to be towards the top. Dirty, dumb, defenseless, many would say. This one's kind of a given, right? Sheep don't have fangs. They They can't bite onto their prey and just rip them to shreds like a lion could with its teeth or jaws. They don't have claws to be able to claw or defend themselves in fights. Uh, They've kind of got the little sheep hooves. In fact, they don't even have what a skunk has. I mean, a skunk looks kind of cute, right? A little black and white fluffiness. Get a little too close and what happens? Tail comes up. Stinky stuff comes out. I mean, at least the the skunk has a little bit of a protection mechanism built in. What can a sheep do? Bleat and go, that's about it, right? So they're not able to defend themselves. They're not not strong. They're, They're generally regarded as not the most intelligent. They're rather dirty. They're dependent. They really need a shepherd to lead them, to guide them, lead them to a, a particular type of water and stream and, and take care of and protect and all of those things. The, the sheep is not the independent, just do my own thing type uh, like maybe some of your cats. Cats could just kind of live their own life. They don't really need you. They might scorn you. They might mock you. They might come up for a little bit of food and leave you alone. I mean, cats can be pretty independent, Sheep really rely on someone, the the shepherd, the caretaker. In fact, I came across this story uh, from a number of years ago. 2005, in eastern Turkey, there were 1,500 sheep from various shepherds' flocks. They were gathered together in one pasture land. The shepherds were apparently having breakfast nearby, Uh, But also, apparently, none of those shepherds seemed to be watching, overseeing, or checking on these sheep. One of these 1,500 sheep wandered off from the others and fell over a nearby cliff to the rocks a number of feet below. The other sheep in the flock, having turned around and noticed one of the sheep on its way, determined that sheep knew what was going and began following the one sheep. One by one by one by one, they went over the cliff into a pile at the bottom, and in a matter of moments, 400 sheep lay dead at the bottom of the cliff with the rest suffering serious injuries. Probably the ones on the bottom being crushed by the ones on the top. The total loss was estimated to be around $74,000. 
Maybe that's why Isaiah writes in Isaiah 53, verse 6, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. So the Bible and the Lord compares us to sheep. We're going to follow someone. We're going to follow something. And it better be the right someone or something or we are in trouble. We'll lose our way. So this morning as we've read the text, uh, we're going to be taking a look at what are some things we can learn from the author to kind of set up and to prepare our hearts for verse by verse by verse, digging into God's Word, digging into these six verses of the 23rd Psalm. What can we learn by this man, David, King David, whom God used to write it? And what does this reveal about the heart of God as ultimately the author who used Writers like a David to pen these words. So we're going to look at a number of lessons from the author as we prepare our hearts for the 23rd Psalm. Lesson number one from the author is this. We must develop a heart after God. We take a look at King David. Only he wasn't king as we first are exposed to him. We're, we're going to kind of take a quick journey through David's life as we get an overview of who he is. We meet David in 1 Samuel chapter 16. Right around this time, the Israelites had determined they wanted a king like everybody else. They had God who was leading them, God who was their king, but they wanted a physical king that they could look to, that they could point to, that would be on the battlefield like all of these surrounding nations. God tells the prophet Samuel to go ahead and to anoint a man as king, and he anoints Saul. Saul's tall. Saul's handsome. He's he's good-looking. He comes from a, a good family, and he seems to be the right kind of king lead and to guide the Israelites. Unfortunately, it wasn't long before he became prideful, conceited, and agitated, and harsh, and his heart towards God was not necessarily soft. So God directs the prophet Samuel. He directs him to a man by the name of Jesse. You're to go to his house, and you're going to anoint one of his sons to be the next king. The prophet Samuel arrives. He encounters Jesse. He comes to see his sons. The first son is presented to him. And in the eyes of the prophet Samuel, he said, wow, this must be the guy. He looks like a king. He gets out his his ram's horn of oil. He's about to anoint him. And the Lord speaks to him and says, he's not the one. One by one by one. He's working his way through Jesse's sons. He gets through all six that are presented. He said, well, is this it? Jesse says, well, I've got a seventh. He's the runt of the family. The little pipsqueak. He's the youngest of my sons. He's actually out in the fields. We we got him keeping the sheep. He's shepherding those sheep. Prophet Samuel says, 
bring him in. And here comes David. The Bible describes him as, as ruddy, as kind of that, that younger boy who's, who's not as impressive looking as maybe some of his brothers. And it's where this scripture and this response of the Lord comes forth. 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. The Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. This is the very first son that was brought to Samuel. He said, The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So he rejected the other six sons. Visually, physically, maybe they seemed like the ones that should have been selected, but God's word, God's message to the prophet Samuel was, it's not these, but it's David. Everybody else, they're looking at the height, they're looking at the strength, they're looking at this, they're looking at that. I'm looking at the heart, and this young man, David, has the heart that I desire. Later in the word of God, we see it written that he is a man after God's own heart. And so this is the man who has penned these words, the Lord is my shepherd. But it's coming through the author, the ultimate author of our Heavenly Father. Will you and I develop a heart after God? Are we seeking things that are exactly what everybody else seeks after? Are, are we seeking the things of, of the world? Or are we seeking things that would be impressive in the eyes of others? Or are we seeking to be honored and following in the heart of God? What God was saying through Samuel to Jesse and those brothers was this. The outside, these other things might be impressive. More important than that, where's your heart at? Do you have a heart for me, the Lord says. So that's the question for you and I today. Before we even dig into Psalm 23, have we developed, have we crafted, are we ready to have a heart after God? Because you and I, we have a heart for a lot of stuff. I mean, we can get stuff riled up right quick just by talking about teams and colleges and sports, right? We won't, at least today. We'll save that fun for another day. Once the season starts and stuff starts happening. But oh, we, we can have some banter back and forth, and, and we have a heart for my team and a heart against your team. And oh, our heart for that team is, oh, we're ready. Do we have that kind of a heart after God? Our shepherd, our leader, our master, our savior? Right off the beginning, as we're looking at some of the early principles from the life of this author and from the life of our Heavenly Father as an author, we're encouraged, develop a heart after God. Second principle I think we can learn from David in his life is this, learn to trust God. So 
we see Samuel, the prophet, coming, and, and he anoints David as king, but he's, he's still a young man. He is not going to be king yet, but he is anointed to be the next king. The very next chapter in 1 Samuel 17, we see it's probably a, a season of time later, maybe a handful of years later. Physically, he's not king. Physically, he's, well, he's still serving as a shepherd boy. He's instructed to, to take some supplies and food to his brothers as they are with King Saul and the Israelites at war with the Philistines. The Philistines, they've got a giant, you probably know him by name, Goliath, right? Nine foot, just massive man. And what they've determined, the Philistines have determined, we're going to send Goliath, our best, obviously, fighter. We're going to send him out. You, the Israelites, you select your best soldier or fighter and have him come out and meet ours. We'll put Goliath up against your man, winner take all. King Saul, the Israelites... They're rather scared. Nobody's responding. Nobody's accepting the challenge. They're kind of quaking in their, in their sandals, if you would. David arrives with food and supplies. He hears what's going on. He sees this, this Goliath, this giant of a man who mocks God, curses the, the living God, the one true God. And David steps up to say, I'll fight. I'm sure there was a, a lot of laughter and maybe fear to say, well, why would we want him to go up against him? The Bible says King Saul, he tried to take his armor and put it on David so he would be at least protected. I mean, he might as well. King Saul certainly wasn't using it. He put it on David and it didn't fit. It was, it was created and geared for a, a taller, stronger more fit man. This is still David as more of a, a young man, young adult. He takes the armor off. He says, I'm not used to this. I'm just going to, I'm going to go up against him with what I'm used to. A slingshot and a few stones. I mean, I've come up against lions and bears and God's helped me then. God's going to help me now. I'm trusting in God. 1 Samuel 17, verses 45 through 47 David says to the Philistine, Goliath, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. You want to talk about some incredible trust a young man, not physically strengthened, tall, or developed, going up against a giant. I mean, 
a normally strong and tall man might be a, a six-footer or you know, some of these basketball, football players, six and a half, seven feet. Even a strong, tall, muscular Israelite would look like a pipsqueak against the nine-foot-plus giant whose the, the, the tip of the spear was, was literally 15 pounds. His armor, the Bible says, was like 100 to 125 pounds. I mean, he was wearing a junior hire on his chest, literally, for his, his armor. That's the kind of man he's coming up against. David's not trusting in himself. David's trusting in the might and the strength and the power of God. So before we even get into Psalm 23, I want to ask us, who or what are we trusting in? Because many times we, we can say, well, well, I trust in me. It's my skill. It's my background, my history, my experience, my intellect, my resources, my connections, my finances, me, I, my, mine. Whatever we face, many times we're all basing it on us. David came to Goliath. David came to the giant, trusting in God. We talk about trusting God even when we face challenges and hardships and trials and giants in our life. David faced a literal giant, and he trusted God. What giants are in your life? We had many hands that were raised just a, a little bit ago in our prayer time. Many hands raised saying, I've got a need in my life. I've got a situation in my life or in somebody that I know. I would venture to say many of those hands that were raised might be identified as giants. I mean, that situation you're facing, it just seems so massive. It doesn't seem to be any way that we could face it in our own, on our own. And you're right, we can't. We've got to do as David did and learn to trust in God. So we take a look at David, this young man, this eventual king who penned these words and the Lord God Almighty giving inspiration on this and we learn to develop a heart after God and learn to trust God. Thirdly, we've got to learn to repent to God. Repent to God. See, eventually, David does become king. He's placed as king, and he leads the troops and the armies, and, and there is incredible success. God is with them as a man after God's own heart. He leads them in some incredible victories. But later on in his life, he strays a little bit from some of those principles we see certainly some of the realness, some of the humanity, some of the sinfulness of David as king. And what we see is this. One night as David was on the top of his palace, he looks out and in another home or in another dwelling, he sees a beautiful woman naked bathing. She's married, but he doesn't care. He asks for her, has her brought to him, commits adultery with her, 
and then finds out that she's pregnant. So she's pregnant. Her husband is at war with the rest of the Israelite troops. So not only does David commit adultery, David then tries to cover up the sin. He brings her husband back from war, hoping that they will get together physically so that this baby that's on its way could certainly be seen as being the father's. But the father does not have any relations with his wife. So David resorts to murder. He sends him back to the front lines of the battle with instructions on the general to place him at the front of the fight where fighting is fiercest. Place him at the front of the battle and then retreat everybody else from behind him, leaving him alone. And so what happens? He dies in the battle. So David not only commits adultery, he tries to cover it up. He then resorts to murdering her husband. Her husband is out of the way, and he brings her in as his wife. Sometimes, boy, this this is hard to, to package because we've just talked about he had a heart after God, and the Bible says he's a he's a man after God's own heart. Understand that word man. He's a man, human. He's not perfect as God, our Heavenly Father, is. He failed. He messed up. He sinned. He tried to cover it up. He messed up again. He sinned. God sent a prophet into his life. There was judgment as a result. David repented. And David penned these words. You can find them in the Word of God, Psalm 51. Some of the introductory remarks, there's not every psalm do we know exactly who and where and when were written. This one we do. Based on after this sin with Bathsheba, after, here's here's what he wrote, and here's the first couple of verses. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your un failing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. In the midst of this sinfulness, David repents, and he turns to God, and he says, cleanse me, forgive me, I repent. Repentance means I'm headed this direction, I'm I'm living a life of sin, I'm choosing to live on my own, and I'm going to do a complete 180, I'm going to turn from sin, and I'm going to turn to God. Repentance isn't doing a 360, we think, wow, 360s are incredible, a complete turn. No, a 360, you end up in the same place you started. Repentance is going the opposite direction turning from sin and turning to God. The Bible is clear in Romans, we have all sinned. We have all fallen short of what God desires. And so even before, all of these principles are things that are shaping David's life. Before he even penned Psalm 23, he's saying, we've got to make sure that that we repent And we stay clean in God's sight. Repent. Final lesson, final principle 
as we prepare our hearts for Psalm 23 is this. We must live to obey God. Live to obey God. So David did repent. David did experience some more blessing as king. But he also experienced some challenges, particularly in his own household. His devotion to his wife faltered. The devotion as a father to his children faltered. One of his sons, Absalom, rebels against God, rebels against David, overthrows the palace, overthrows the throne, and David goes on the run. His son Absalom is eventually killed. David mourns and grieves, but remains king, and then begins to prepare his son Solomon to succeed him as king. Solomon would become, as we know, the the wisest man, the wisest king, would author and pen a, a couple of books, Ecclesiastes and Proverbs. We take a look at this. Here's King David's closing and some of his parting words. You know, when when someone is sharing some of their very final thoughts, their final words, they're pretty important. First Kings chapter 2, first several verses, says, when the time drew near for David to die, he gave a charge to Solomon, his son. I'm about to go the way of all the earth, he said, so be strong, act like a man, and observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in obedience to him. Keep his decrees and commands, his laws and regulations as written in the law of Moses. Do this so that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go. Some pretty powerful final words. He'd had a a, a pretty full life of blessing and disappointment and sin, and, and yet the hand of God's continued blessing upon him in later years with Many more challenges. It was a life of ups and a life of downs, joys and sorrows. And he told his son Solomon to obey God. Observe what he says. Walk in obedience. Keep his laws. Keep his commands. Do this so that you may prosper in all you do. The encouragement to his son was, as you honor, as you are faithful, as you obey God is blessing. Make sure that you honor and live in obedience to him. You might might think you can do it all on your own. I did, and boy, I messed up. Make sure that you live in obedience, son, and God will bless all that you do. Before we even jump into Psalm 23, looking at some overarching lessons, God as the ultimate author, King David as the human author who penned some of these words. He encourages us to follow some of these lessons. May we develop a heart after God. May we learn to trust God. May we repent to God. And may we live to obey God. 